to take your Bible and turn to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. Today I want to talk to you about a life worth living. Luke chapter 12. I'll begin reading at verse 13. I ask you to stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding, and to the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. At the beginning of Luke chapter 12, the author records for us a dandy little sermon that Jesus preached. Jesus is a man on a mission. He is on a collision course with Calvary. He wastes no time and gets right to the point. In Luke chapter 12, verse 1, we are told that thousands of people gathered around to hear Jesus preach. They, in fact, trampled on each other just to get an earshot to hear what the holy rabbi from Galilee had to say. Jesus began his sermon by warning the crowd against the yeast of the Pharisees, otherwise known as hypocrisy. He says, beware, because those dirty little deeds done in darkness will be brought to light. All those things that are done in secret will be revealed. Jesus says to the crowd, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body and then do nothing more. I'll tell you who you need to be afraid of. Fear him who has the power and the authority that once he kills the body, he has the authority to throw you into hell. Be careful, Jesus says, for anyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. But anyone who denies me before men, I will deny and disown even in the presence of the very angels of God. Jesus is not mixing words. Jesus is speaking rather directly to the crowd. He's telling them how to live. He's giving them a life worth living. He's about to 
land the plane. He's about to issue the invitation. He's been shucking the corn. He's been laying it out. He is waiting for a great harvest for when he offers the invitation, he knows that many people will come in obedient response unto him. Yet before he can conclude the sermon, somebody interrupts him. Can you imagine the audacity of this man? He comes to church this day with an axe to grind. He stands up in the middle of the sermon and says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Isn't this a question that could have waited till the end of the sermon? Everybody knows that once the preacher gets done, then people come up and kind of talk about the sermon. Isn't this a statement that could have been reserved for the end of the service? But this man is fuming because of a perceived injustice. He is upset. He came to church with nothing on his mind other than justice. He needs somebody to fix a problem in his life. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. When I think about this, I realize that what's true in the first century is also true in the 21st century. I mean, this guy came to church that day, and he wasn't listening to anything that Jesus had to say. He was waiting for the moment when he could interject his statement and his question. He is so bound up with this preoccupation of something that's gone wrong in his life. And then I realized, you know what? I think people still do that today. There's some people who still come to church today with an axe to grind. There's a perceived injustice and the sermon can go on and on and the preacher can go on and on. And all the while, you're thinking about that problem that just consumes your thoughts. You're not really paying attention to what's going on. In fact, I know that Jesus is perfect. I know he's sinless, but at some level, he must have thought to himself, what does that have to do with anything I've been talking about? I remember as a young preacher in the very first assignment that the Lord gave me, I was the senior pastor of First Baptist Church in Owenton, Kentucky, and we had a midweek prayer service. I didn't quite know how that was supposed to go, but I thought to myself, well, I guess at a prayer service, you need to pray. So the, what we would do is I would do a little devotion, and then I would ask people to offer up their prayer concerns, and we would pray for them one by one, and that's pretty much how we filled our time in the prayer service. Different than how it used to go, but I thought to myself, listen, I'm a young guy, prayer service needs to have prayer in it. So that's how we conducted our service. And I just got to be honest with you, oftentimes I'd walk away from that midweek prayer service deflated and depressed because of all the prayer concerns that came about ailments and sicknesses and broken bones and displaced joints. And I thought to myself, surely there must be more to this than, than just that. So I decided to throw a curveball. I mean, I really decided to mix things up and change it up just a bit. And so I uh, created this great little devotion. It was a, 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 just a humdinger of a devotion. It was a devotion about the goodness and the greatness of God. And so what I thought was I would go and talk about the goodness and greatness of God, and then I would ask for the congregation to give me uh, testimonies about how good God is and how great he's been in, his li in, in their lives. And so I thought that was a wonderful idea. So I went and I, I, I gave the, the devotion. It was fantastic. You weren't there, but boy, I wish you could have been there. It was fantastic. <laughs> 
And I got done with that little devotion, and I said, okay, now we're just going to give praises unto the Lord. Does anybody have a testimony they want to share? And the lady shot her hand up in the air immediately, and I thought, okay, this is going to be good. I said, Sue, what do you got? She said, well, preacher, let me just tell you. I've got a friend who has inoperable liver cancer, and she's going to die. And I looked at her, and I was waiting for the praise. I was waiting for the punchline, and the punchline never came. That was it. That was her testimony. That was her praise report. Now, I'm a young preacher at that moment. I didn't know what to do, so I didn't know how to handle a heckler. And so I stood there, and all I could say was, praise the Lord. (laughs) Does anybody else have a praise report? You know? I mean, I didn't know what to do. Now, Jesus handles himself far better than I did. Jesus knows how to handle the heckler in the crowd. The heckler stands up and says, hey, Jesus, I got a problem. I need you to fix it. Now, apparently, this guy had a dad who died. And probably this is the younger of the two brothers. Because in Jewish custom, the older brother would have been the executor of the estate. The older brother would have received two-thirds of the inheritance. The younger brother would have been in line to receive one-third of the inheritance. What this guy is saying to Jesus is, my older brother, the executor of of the estate, is dragging his feet when it comes to probating the will. And we need for you to step in and settle the matter. And Jesus is a bit offended. And he says, man... Who appointed me as a judge or an arbiter between the two of you? What's Jesus upset at? This man, in a millisecond, had just demoted Jesus. He had just dethroned Jesus. Jesus says, look, man, I did not come just to settle a squibble-squabble between siblings. This is not the first time that Families will fight over family finances. It's not the last time that families will fight over finances. You know stories, I know stories of families that have been ripped apart because brothers and sisters cannot agree on how mommy and daddy wanted to leave their estate. And families get ripped apart because of this thing. That's nothing new under the sun. It happens today. It happened in the days of Jesus. And Jesus says to this man, look, I did not come just to settle your financial issues. I did not come just to settle some family squabbles in your house. I did not come just to help and referee husbands and wives. I did not come just to give you a few pointers on how to have a happy healthy marriage. I didn't come just to give you a few tidbits on how to raise teenagers. I did not come just to show you how to have a convenient life. I didn't come just to solve all your problems. Jesus says, I want you to know I came to seek and to save the lost. I came so that dead people can be raised to life. Those who are completely dirty and dingy because of sin can be forgiven both now and forevermore have a life more abundant free. I came to raise the dead. I came to give new purpose in life. I came to transform people from the inside out. I didn't just come just to fix your problems of your own demise. I want you to know if you miss this, you miss it all. 
if all we think is that Jesus came to make us comfortable, if Jesus came just to fix all of our problems, that Jesus came just to settle our disputes, if Jesus, that we think Jesus came just to make the path smooth, friend, we've missed it. Because Jesus came to raise dead people. Those who are dead in sin, that's you, that's me. Before we come to faith in Christ, we are as dead as a doornail. And it's only by the power of Christ that the dead can be raised. It's only because of the accomplished work of the Lord Jesus Christ that those of us who acknowledge our sinfulness can be declared saints in the very sight of God. It is only because of Christ. The one thing that really irks Jesus is when you and I demote him. And we dethrone him. And we make him less of who he is. Man, who, who appointed me as your judge? What he means by judge is one to settle disputes. I'm not one to be employed by you. I'm not one that can be easily bought off. I'm not one who just came to do some arbitration between you and your warring sibling. Jesus said, I came to save you and your warring sibling. To give you a peace that passes all understanding. So then Jesus speaks to the man and through the man to the crowd. Jesus is a master at this. He addresses this man and by addressing this man, he is speaking to the thousands that appeared that day. And he's even speaking to us 2,000 years later. He says, beware of greed. Beware of all forms of greed. He's tapping in on this man's dilemma. What, what drove this man to church was his axe to grind. What drove him to church was his perceived injustice. At the heart of what drove him to church is, Jesus, I want you to give me something. Something that I deserve. I deserve a third of the estate. I want you to give me something. And Jesus taps in and says, no, really, you want me to aid your greed. Beware of all forms of greed. The original language, the word that is rendered greed, is really covetousness. Jesus says, be aware of all forms of coveting. Now automatically when you hear that, your mind ought to race back to Exodus chapter 20. The top ten list, the ten commandments. And in the ten commandments, you get to the bottom one, the tenth one, and it says, thou shalt not covet. Most of us don't have a clue what that means. We think to ourselves, well, God had nine pretty good ones. And he can't give us a top nine. Who ever heard of a top nine list? He's got to round it out to a top ten list. And so, not knowing what else to throw in there, he just kind of throws in, thou shalt not covet. Kind of rounds out the list, don't you think? But we don't really know what that means. We kind of think of it as like an addendum or a PS to a letter. Not that big of a deal. But the reality is, what God does in the giving of the Ten Commandments is that in the 10th one, he is summarizing all of them. It is because we have a problem with coveting that we have other gods besides the Lord. And we make idols out of things in creation instead of worshiping the Creator. 
And it's because of our covetousness that we misuse the name of the Lord and we do not reverence the Sabbath and keep it holy. It's because of our selfish, coveting spirit that we do not honor mom and dad, that we um, commit adultery and murder and we steal and we lie. You know what it means to covet? What it means to covet is to want more of what you have enough of already. That's what it means to covet. So you and I covet when we want that new truck, even though the truck that we have in the driveway is perfectly fine and it runs quite well. That's coveting. We covet when we just want and have to have another pair of shoes, even though the 37 pair that we have in our closet still fit perfectly. That's coveting. It's when we say, uh, Lord, I really wish I had another set of parents. They seem a lot nicer than the ones I have. When we begin to do that, we are coveting what God has given by His own design. When there are husbands and wives that want to trade in their spouse for a younger, hipper model, what we're doing is we are coveting because the husband or the wife that you have is a gift from God. Even on those days when he certainly doesn't look like a gift, or maybe she doesn't even act like a gift. Your spouse is still a gift from God. I was told one time that when you covet, it's like you're, you're, you're thinking that the grass is always greener on the other side. So, so you just got to have something more, something else, something better. You want more of what you already have enough of already. One of the great stories I've ever heard of someone who was the opposite of having covetousness is a story that uh, is alive and well in the halls of Beeson Divinity School. You all know that I'm a graduate of Beeson Divinity School. It's housed right here in Birmingham on the campus of Sanford University. Uh, Beeson gets its name because Mr. Beeson had a boatload of money. And he gave away a boatload of money. And I'm a beneficiary of some of that boatload of money because it's by his donation that I, I went to that school. The story is told that Mr. Beeson... Uh, always wore corduroy pants. And he had two pair of corduroy pants. Um, and that's it. That's, that's all that he had. It said, that's all that I need. One Christmas, a family member bought him a third pair of corduroy pants, and he went ballistic. And they said, what? Why don't you like this? He says, listen, I've got more than I need. I've already got two pair. I can only wear one at a time. Why you give me another pair of corduroy pants? That's the opposite of having covetousness. Jesus says, beware of all forms of coveting. For a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. We have a lot of stuff, don't we? We got stuff in the dining room. We got stuff in the living room. We got stuff in the kitchen. We've got stuff in the bedroom. We got stuff in the garage. We got stuff parked in the driveway. 
We got stuff upstairs and downstairs and on the stairs. We got stuff everywhere, don't we? We're oozing with stuff. We got so much stuff that sometimes we've got to build a storage unit just to stuff our stuff. Jesus is not saying that it's bad to have stuff so long as that stuff doesn't have you. You can have possessions, but don't be possessed by those possessions. To drive home the point that a man's life or a woman's life doesn't consist of the abundance of possessions, he he tells a story. It's a great little story. It's one of those stories off the cuff that Jesus was able to spin. He said one day there was a farmer, and this farmer was a well-to-do farmer. He was kind of a rags-to-riches story. He was a success by everyone's standards. He had a great little farming business. One year was better than others. He had a bumper crop. And he wondered to himself, what am I going to do with all this? All this stuff. It never crossed his mind that he was blessed to be a blessing to somebody else. He just thought, hey, this is because of my own hard work. This is because of my own doing. I don't know if this man was a good family man. According to the story of Jesus, we know that at least he's married. He has a wife. We can assume that he had some children, maybe even some darling grandchildren. Don't know. I don't know if this man was a religious man, but I dare say he was just as religious as the next guy. He probably went to synagogue just as often as anybody else went to synagogue. He was probably a member of First Synagogue of Capernaum. I don't know how much he tithed. I don't know how much he gave. But there were probably moments when the leader of the synagogue would go to him and say, look, we've got this uh, big project that we need done. Uh, Can can you contribute uh, just a, a large gift? If you're the biggest donor, we'll plaster your name on the outside of the building. He thought to himself, now that'd be good. Yeah, I'll give. I don't know. At any rate, this man was very successful. He thought to himself, what, what do I do with all this stuff? He had a natural dilemma. I mean, what do you do with all your extra stuff? I'll tell you what he did. He said, I'll tear down my existing barns and I'll build bigger barns. That's a great idea, right? I'll just build bigger barns to have all of my extra stuff. I'm sure he hired the Brassfield and Gory of Israel. He got the best architect in the world. And he said, guys, I need you to come. I need you to draw out the blueprints. Bring to me what you got. And I can well imagine that in the wee hours of the evening, the architect came over spread all the blueprints across the kitchen table. Now keep in mind, this man was a hard worker. He he was usually up before the sun peeked over the eastern horizon. He worked all day. Many times the darkness would blanket the sky before he made it back to the house. So obviously it's late at night. Uh, The room is lit by a, a small oil lamp. And this farmer is there and he's studying the blueprints. And the representative, the architect is there and He's saying, you know, we can make that adjustment. We can do this adjustment. It'll cost this much money. It'll cost that much money. And all the while, the farmer is tabulating all the calculations. He makes all the final decisions. And now this is going to be nice because he just added a loft in the fourth barn. Oh, it's going to be nice. I mean, he added one barn that 
had doors that opened and closed automatically. And this is in the first century. Pretty awesome, right? This, this is going to be pretty special. It's late. The architect needs to get home. He kind of rolls up his copy of the blueprints. He says, sir, I will make all these adjustments. I'll, I'll give you the price. I'll come back in a day or two. Uh, you can sign the contract. Does that sound good? Everything we said tonight, uh, I'll be good for, and, and I'll put it down on paper. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, it sounds great. He doesn't even get up to let the man walk out the door. He just kind of shows him the door, points to it. And he's there still engrossed in his copy of the blueprints. The wife of the farmer walks by and she pats him on the shoulder, gives him a kiss on the forehead, says, honey, please, let's come to bed. He says, darling, I'll be there in a minute. I just, I just got a couple more things. Who's he kidding? He's not going to bed. I mean, his adrenaline's pumping. His wheels are turning. I mean, he's consumed by this project. I mean, this is going to be awesome. This is going to be great. Darling, I'll be there in a little while. You go on. You go on to bed. She goes up the stairs, gets ready for bed. What this man didn't realize is that as he was building up barns, he was also building up stress. And then in a New York second, his chest filled with pain. That pain shot down his arm. He broke out in a cold sweat on his forehead. He grasped his cloak. And then with a thud, he hit the kitchen table. In a moment, the dream was gone. In a heartbeat, everything was over. Several hours passed. It was early the next morning. The wife realizes the husband never came to bed. She runs down the steps, and there she sees her husband. He slumped over at the kitchen table. She begins to sob and to grieve. She makes all the preparations needed for the funeral. And it's a great funeral. I mean, as far as funerals goes, this, this, this was a humdinger of a funeral. The place was packed. Of course it took place in the synagogue right there at Capernaum. Everybody was there. Preachers stood up to give the funeral eulogy. And he stood up and he he said, now here lies a, a great man with a strong work ethic. He was up before the sun. He worked all day long. In fact, some of you teenagers would do well to model your life after him. Work hard because you have to work for all you get. This man worked hard. He was a family man. He liked his wife. Loved his children. Adored his grandchildren. Yes, he did. He uh, was a churchman. He came to church as much as many of you. And whenever I needed a special project to be funded, he was right there. Gave a lot. Here lies a good man. A rags to riches story. God must be honored by this man. They got done with the funeral, they left the synagogue, they went to the graveside, they conducted the service there, put the body in the, in the tomb, then of course they went back for the family meal. And then in the story, Jesus pulls back the curtain and gives us God's point of view. You know what God says about this man? You fool. 
What? You fool. Wait a minute. God, this is a great man. It's a great rags to riches story. He's an honorable man. He worked hard. He has a good work ethic. He gave when he could get recognition. I mean, he, he was just as good as anybody else. And God says, fool. Isn't it interesting that the people in our culture that we may regard as successful, God regards as a fool? Isn't it interesting that sometimes even the people in the church that we just might regard as honorable before the Lord, God might label a fool. Why was this man a fool? Was he a fool because he was rich? No. Was he a fool because he had stuff? No. Why was he a fool? He was a fool, according to Jesus, because he wasn't rich towards God. You know what a fool is? A fool is anyone who lives life as if God doesn't exist. That's a fool. By that definition, I've met some fools in college. I've met some fools out of college. I've met some fools on the street. I've met some fools in my culture. I may have even met a fool or two even in the church. A person who lives life as if God doesn't exist. If, if the goal of life is not the accumulation of stuff, then what's the goal of life? Most of us live life with this motto. Whoever dies with the most toys wins. And God says that's the dumbest motto I could ever think of. So if it's true, Jesus... That man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions, in the accumulation of his stuff. Then what does life consist of? I'm so glad you ask. Because Jesus gives his answer in the very next verses. I want to read them for you rather quickly. It comes in Luke chapter 12, beginning of verse 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat, about your body, what you'll wear. Life is more than food. The body is more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They do not have a storeroom or a barn. Yet, God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you'll eat or drink. Do not worry about it. Do not be consumed by it, is the word that he used. For the pagans... Uh, run after such things, and your father knows that you need them. But if you want to know what a life worth living looks like, if you want to know what it means to live forever, then look at the very next verse. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Life does not consist in the abundance of stuff. Life consists in the abundance of the Savior. 
Life consists in your pursuit of the one who pursues you. So don't demote him. Don't dethrone him. Don't try to derail him. Don't try to tell him to come into your life and fix all your problems. No, you make it your top priority to seek his rule, his reign in your life. And then he says, I care for you so much. All these other things, I'll take care of them too. It's not that he's telling us to live in abject poverty. It's not that he's telling us don't worry uh, or don't even think about um, how you're going to plan for the future. He just says don't worry. Don't be tied up. Don't be consumed about these things. If you're going to be consumed about anything, be consumed about Christ. I don't necessarily worry about the person who says... um, I, I, I want to seek first the kingdom of God. And what that means to me is that before I buy this house, I say, Lord, do you want me to have it? Before I buy this car, before I go on this vacation, before I do this, before I take this job, before I, 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 I uh, uproot my family and move here, before I even make this decision of, of a daily bread, before I do those things, I ask of the Lord, Lord, do you want me to have this? And if he says, yes, I have it. If he says, no, I don't. I don't, I, I don't worry about those individuals. You know who I worry about? I worry about the people who call themselves Christ followers and never have that divine dialogue with the Lord. They live life as if God doesn't exist. They live life as if He has no bearing on daily decisions. They live life as if He hasn't already planned out and mapped out your abundant life for you. They live as if they are self-made men and women. Do you know what God calls those people? You fool. Tonight, your very life may be asked of you. My friends, I am standing and I'm pleading with you. I'm pleading with myself, pleading with anyone who will listen. We do not need to be foolish when it comes to the things of God. We do not need to live as if God doesn't exist. We need to seek first His kingdom, which means we need to make it our top priority that He rules and reigns in our life. If He's king and we are servants, He makes the decisions and we follow in obedience. That's the relationship between king and servant. And if He is king. He makes decisions. We follow. And we're not worried about it. We just follow His lead. Who is Jesus? He is the mighty Messiah. He is the sovereign Savior. He is the Lord who leads us to a life worth living. So today, seek first His kingdom. Don't be consumed with all that other stuff. God knows you need it. He'll take care of it. You be preoccupied with the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we bow before You. We give this invitation. Lord, Your words ring so true 2,000 years later. It's not an American thing. It's a human thing to be gripped by greed, to be possessed by our possessions, to be stuffed with our stuff. And Lord, I like stuff just like the next guy. And I want things just like the next girl, although I'm not a girl. But Lord, you know what we're saying. Jesus, we give this invitation. Lord, help us to have right priorities. Help us to 
to seek first your kingdom in all things. If that means that today we need to trust you as Savior and Lord, so be it. If that means that today we need to come and fall at your altar, let it be. If that means that today we need to come and join this faith family, we will follow in obedience. You are king. We are servant. We follow your lead. So Lord, help us to seek first your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.